I'm Jeff Cohen. Not many people can trace the beginning of their Jewish journey to winning a writing contest. Fewer still can trace it to the grand prize they won in that contest. But that's exactly what happened to our next guest, Yvonne Marzouk. Let's hear her story now. Yvonne, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much. And we open with a cliffhanger on that one. I think our listeners are like, tell me about this contest. What was she writing about? What did she win? But we have to leave that to a little later in your story, right? Yeah, definitely. I think we should get to know you a little bit first, and then we'll get to what happened and how your journey began. So let, let's start at the beginning in terms of where your family's from, where you were born and raised. Yeah, so I grew up in Philadelphia, and I grew up in this community where, like, you know, everyone around me was Jewish, but nobody was religious at all. Keeping kosher or keeping Shabbat was kind of unheard of. And sometimes people would go to synagogue for the high holidays, but mostly, you know, we were just Jewish. That's just how we were. And what was your specific family doing? My family was amongst the least religious of anyone that I knew. Mine too. My parents were not religious, and their parents weren't religious, and maybe a grandparent was religious, like somewhere back there. My uncle told me that I had family members like riding their bikes on Yom Kippur in New York in like the 1800s, uh-huh. like, it was like that far back. And so we kind of knew we were Jewish, but that was kind of like all that we knew. And like so much of the tradition had been lost that it was almost like you didn't even know what you were missing. Well, so were you doing any of the things like getting Hanukkah gifts or having a piece of matzah or not even doing like some of those baseline things that even secular Jews might be doing? I think we celebrated Hanukkah, but I think that until I requested to go to Hebrew school, and I'll explain how that happened, but I think we had a menorah that was like an electric menorah that you would light in the window, and that was kind of like, you know, how we showed that we were Jewish rather than having a Christmas tree. Like, that was one of the things I often would say is that like the last thing that you know when you're Jewish, but like so unaffiliated is that you're not Christian. So like the only thing that I knew was like the, my friend had a Christmas tree, but I had no Christmas tree. So. And you, you saw a few of these things that your secular Jewish friends were doing, like some were going to shul sometimes or were doing like a little bit more. At that young age, were you craving any of those things or you just sort of accepted what your family was doing? I would say that I was craving My closest friend at the time, she went to a conservative synagogue. She was like the kind of person who would go to services on high holidays. And one day I wanted to play with her. I was like, I was in elementary school and we were supposed to play together. And she said, I can't tonight. I have to go to Hebrew school. And I said, what's Hebrew school? (laughs) She said, I go to Hebrew school because I'm Jewish. And I said, I think I'm Jewish. (laughs) So (laughs) why don't I go to Hebrew school? I went home to my parents and I said, are we Jewish? And they said, yeah, we're Jewish. I said, so why don't I go to Hebrew school? They were like, well, we don't do that. And I didn't really understand why. And it finally all sort of came to a head, actually, when one night, and it was the summertime, all the grown-ups would kind of hang out and talk on the street in Philly. And they were all sort of talking. And they came in, and they found me sitting on the floor watching gospel music, watching like a gospel show. And then they like had this whole consultation with all the neighbors, like, should Yvonne get to go to Hebrew school? (laughs) Because like, because they didn't want me listening to gospel music. And but I think that it was like kind of a sign of how much I was craving, like how much I really wanted to be connected to something. It was there was a real um, pull for me towards the sort of religion and spirituality, which is kind of crazy because like there was just no history of that in my family at all. It was just like kind of innate for me, like that was something I was really wanting. So do you remember how old you were when this happened? Because you mentioned in your previous answer saying to your parents, am I Jewish too? 
So I just wanted to clarify that because it seemed like you were doing a couple of things within your house, like you mentioned the menorah, that there was some basic understanding that you were Jewish. But like, how old were you when you asked this question? Like, mom and dad, am I actually Jewish? I mean, it must have been like second or third grade. I finally got to Hebrew school in fourth grade. All right. So you're in public school during the day and you're doing Hebrew school like a few times a week after school? Yeah, I think it was maybe once a week and then also on Sunday. And then as it got closer to my bat mitzvah, like two times a week. So my parents searched around for like the least religious synagogue they could find. (laughs) And they found the synagogue in Philadelphia. It was called Temple Zion. And they said, we're reconformadox, which like, I don't know, it was like in practice, it was a synagogue where they played the organ and services on Friday night and Saturday. So I don't know where the Orthodox came in. But really what that meant was that they didn't affiliate with any of the denominations in Judaism. So it wasn't even like associated with any large movement like the the reform movement or the conservative movement or anything. It didn't take advantage of those kinds of things. So it was just kind of a synagogue on its own. And it wasn't let's say, like the most inspiring educational experience for me, but I was wanting it. And I I remember meeting the rabbi. I remember, I vividly remember like the time that they took us in to see what the Torah looks like and to show us, like those things really made an impression on me. Like I just really found it to be very beautiful and like almost painfully inaccessible to me. Really? How so? So when you start Hebrew school in fourth grade, this is hard because you have not learned Hebrew and all the other kids that started Hebrew school a few years ago did. And so I had to learn the letters and they put me on sort of a remedial Hebrew, like, like with the tutors and with the kids who couldn't get it. And in school, I was like considered to be bright, but in Hebrew school, I was considered to be very, you know, far behind. And so that was a real struggle for me to feel like that I that I I wanted it, but it was like really, really hard to get. By the way, I have to just put this in perspective where you're saying it's hard to come to learning Hebrew in fourth grade. So I came to it as an adult. So if you think it was hard then, imagine watching your kids who by the third day of kindergarten are like way ahead of what you're capable of doing. And you have to tell them, I will be your person for all of your secular homework, like all the general studies, but anything on the other side, you have to go to an aunt and uncle or my wife who's from Israel and has some background. But I find this so funny that even coming to it in fourth grade would feel like you're way behind and that there's like a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, I mean, and I've had similar experiences with my kids of feeling like they learn it sort of natively. And it's just, I'm so grateful that they have that opportunity. But it's also like, I feel sad that I don't have, you know, quite as much native learning as they do to be able to support them in those things. Yeah. And did you through Hebrew school, did that lead up to having a bat mitzvah? Like what happened in those middle school years? I did have a bat mitzvah. And it was nice. I talked about Esau and Jacob, my Parsha was told out. And uh I think that even then I sort of felt the cognitive dissonance of like this spiritually important, meaningful religious activity and then like big party. (laughs) And like it felt so sort of mundane, the party part compared to like the like supposed to be sort of coming of age in a religion. So it makes me wonder about the post bat mitzvah years, because you have a lot of people I knew growing up who once they had their bar bat mitzvah, like that was it because there really wasn't any kind of structure for them to continue with the religion unless they like were personally very into it. But you've had the sort of craving and wanting theme you've been talking about as you're growing up. So what happens for you in high school in terms of religion? I continued after my bat mitzvah. I had my bat mitzvah in eighth grade and I continued into like they had confirmation classes in the synagogue. And so I did that in ninth grade. But sometime around then, 
I remember my mom coming to me and saying, like, are you actually liking this Hebrew school thing? (laughs) And the truth is, I didn't really love it. I mean, it was fine, but, like, I had other things going on. She was like, you know, this is very expensive. And if this isn't important to you, we don't need to keep doing it. So I kind of looked at it, and I looked at all the other things that I had going on, and I said, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I I won't continue. And so I stopped doing Hebrew school. But then... I got invited to a dance from the B'nai B'rith Youth Organization, and they would have these kinds of socials and dances, and I joined into this particular chapter in B'nai B'rith Girls, and that was like actually the first fully satisfying Jewish community that I was ever part of, this group of young Jewish girls, and we had a great advisor. She was really about women's empowerment. And in BBYO, they have different kinds of categories of programming that you were supposed to do. And our chapter really made an effort to do all the different programming, to not just do social, but to also do Jewish heritage programming and to do like religious programming. And so like we would sometimes have like a service that we kind of constructed all by ourselves. And through that, I started to just kind of develop a Jewish identity that was attached to feeling proud of being a woman and also feeling connected to like my heritage in a meaningful way. And because it was like not attached to like any kind of authority figure or reliance upon my parents to pay for it or taught by a teacher who maybe wasn't super excited about it themselves, but much more sort of self-generated, I was able to kind of find a home there and to start to see myself as a leader there, which really was meaningful for me and helped me to kind of grow into who I am. Were the girls who were in the program Orthodox or or not? Like, what were you being exposed to by the people you were meeting? They were not Orthodox at all. BBYO was kind of like the last outpost as you're about to leave Judaism. It's like you're on your way completely out of Judaism. And then there's like this one, that's how it felt to me. Like there's this one little outpost at the end where you might stop and get interested and turn back around. And that's how it was for me. It was like the last chance. No one was religious. I think there was one girl who kept kosher kind of nominally in her house. There wasn't any expectation for that. There were parties on Friday nights. But there was also a kind of Jewish pride that I had never really experienced before and a kind of ownership of the tradition that I had never really experienced before. Instead of it being something that was kind of being shoveled down my throat and it was something that we could create ourselves and feel like we could own it and feel like it could be ours. So is this around the time that the writing contest happens that I alluded to in the introduction? (laughs) Is this the time to insert that story that our listeners have been waiting for? So I'll get there. So in BBYO, they had a program called the International Leadership Training Conference, which was a a summer program for up-and-coming sort of Jewish leaders. And I, I came into that program the summer before my senior year. And that was like a truly life-changing experience for me. It was the first time I'd ever been in any setting where people kept kosher. I think it was like probably kosher style, but it was more kosher than I'd ever seen before. We had classes, a very intense program all week long, but on Shabbat, we had nothing and you could just kind of relax and do whatever you wanted. That was really my first experience of Shabbat. And also in that program, I met a lot of kids who were more strongly affiliated than me. And some of them had been to Israel. And they started telling me about how wonderful Israel was. And I was like, yeah, there's really no chance that I'll ever be getting to Israel. It was in the 90s around the times of some of the bus bombings that were happening in Israel. My parents were particularly scared about those kinds of things. You know, it wasn't something that my parents were going to pay for me to do because they, A, didn't really see that much value in a trip to Israel and B, you know, thought that it was dangerous. 
And um, I thought that would be so nice if I could get to go to Israel one day, but like I just couldn't possibly see a way that that could happen. And I came home from the leadership program and started my senior year of high school. And, you know, at that point, I was actually really starting to think about like things like, wow, I wonder if Shabbat could be meaningful in my life. I wonder if it might be possible to keep kosher a little bit, like because I had experienced it at this program, had some meaningful spiritual experiences while I was there. But this trip to Israel seemed like kind of impossible. And then this crazy thing happened. I was just in a public high school in Philadelphia and this organization called the Israel Program Center appeared, <laughs> came to my high school, like chose my high school, and said, we're going to do a contest. And the contest is going to have like four components to it. The people who win these four components will win a free trip to Israel. And so one of the components was creative writing. And I was, like, at the time, the editor of the literary magazine in my high school. I was a senior in high school, and I had, like, done a lot of writing. Writing was something that I knew I was really passionate about. And so I thought, well, I'm totally going to write <laughs> a story to win this contest. And the story that I wrote, I read it later. It was kind of crazy because I knew so little about it that it was like, you know, it literally had people like men and women standing next to each other at the hotel. Right. Like I just didn't, I didn't know what it was like in Israel. I didn't, there was so much that I didn't know, but I wrote a powerful story about different kinds of Jews coming together at the hotel. And I had like different strands of the journeys that each of them had taken in their lives and how they all sort of ended up there at the hotel. And I won. And so I got to go on this incredible trip to Israel with a few other people from my high school who had won other components of the program. And they guided us through like a, a meaningful experience of getting to know the land of Israel. We had an opportunity to go and be with um, some kids who were doing a program at a kibbutz and get to see what a kibbutz was like. Of course, we got to go to the hotel. I think that somehow I gave tzedakah to someone on the street and ended up with like two Shabbos candles in my hand. <laughs> I was like, oh, I could actually light candles before Shabbat. And I like, I had to like find something to put them in and everything to like figure out how to do that. And then while I was there, I bought Shabbos candlesticks. And that was like the kind of the beginning for me of actually thinking like Shabbat, like I could do that. I could do something like that. I could try this. That trip made me feel like God cared about me. Because up until that point, like I was just kind of like this random person sort of trying, bumping around, like trying to find my way. But that trip made me feel like something's happening here. Like it's not just, I'm, it's not just me all by myself. God actually wants me to do this, like brought me here. I really felt like it was an incredible gift. What I'm really wondering is, why did your parents let you go? I mean, I would think you said to them, the good news is, clearly I have writing talent because I won this thing. But the bad news is, the grand prize is maybe something you're not so excited about. So how did they react to you going there? That's a good question. They were not super thrilled. <laughs> I mean, of course, the fact that it was free removed like the whole question of whether they'd have to pay for it. So it would have been hard for them to say no, because if they had had to pay for it, they for sure would have said no. But... It was hard for them to say no to like winning a contest and getting a free trip to Israel. It's a pretty big deal. I had a, a an elementary school teacher who I was close to who was um who was not orthodox but who was very Jewishly involved and had been to Israel many times. Her daughter lived in Israel and my parents went and talked to her and said like is this really okay? Like can she really go? Is it safe? And she talked them into it. 
one of the many gifts that she gave me in my life, actually. She told them, you should let her do this. As I'm reflecting on the story you just shared, I'm also thinking, you didn't grow up around Orthodox people, and even the, the program you were in wasn't Orthodox people. So when you're going to Israel and you're having this experience where you're getting Shabbos candles and you're thinking, I could keep Shabbos, I wouldn't think you understand at that point in your life, what does it mean to be Orthodox? Are you just thinking, here's one little piece that maybe I want to bring into my life, but not understanding like the full realm of things that go with living an Orthodox life? Yeah, for sure. I was just dabbling. I was just, you know, following breadcrumbs. The trip was not Orthodox at all. I think that the other people on the trip thought I was a little weird for lighting those Shabbos candles. And um, it wasn't intended to be a trip to make people religious, like at least on paper. I mean, I think that maybe that's what, what, what Hashem had in mind, but it wasn't on paper. That's not what it was for. It was for, I think, raising awareness about Israel. And so when I got to college, so I went to college in Baltimore and in Baltimore, if you kind of say, I'd like to learn more about Judaism, like there are plenty of people who would be very happy to tell you. Um, and I was involved in the Jewish Students Association at Johns Hopkins, where I went to school. And they had this program called Mondays at Eight. And in that program, they would bring people who are part of the Pikesville community, young men and women, to do Havruta learning with the Hopkins students. They basically said, you can learn anything you want. And here's like... <laughs> here's a Pikesville completely orthodox person who will learn it with you. And I really wanted to learn. And so I was like, sign me up. <laughs> and and through that, I met two young women who I learned with. I actually wanted to learn prophecy. I've always been sort of fascinated by prophecy. She went to the rabbi who was running the program and said, she wants to learn one of the books of the prophets. What should I learn with her? <laughs> and, and the rabbi said, don't learn that with her. <laughs> and um, no, that's not a good idea to start with any of the books of the prophets. And like having learned them now, I can understand why. <laughs> but at the time, like it seemed like, well, you said I could learn anything. So she said to the rabbi, okay, so what should we learn? And he said, why don't you try Megillah Esther? And that was a good choice because like it has a, you know, it has that kind of feel to it. And also like I hadn't ever learned that before. And so we learned that together. It was funny. We started in September. So she was like, I'm pulling out all my books from Purim. But like <laughs> we started learning in September and we learned all that year. And then for Purim, she brought me to her synagogue to hear the reading. And it was the Agoda in Baltimore. And um, I had never been in an Orthodox synagogue before in my life. And like, honestly, like it was like, I didn't even know they would let me in. Like, like, who am I? Why would they let me in? But like, I wore a skirt. It was my first experience of actually kind of blending in an Orthodox community and thinking like, maybe I could fit here. Like, maybe this could be okay. Like, I didn't really ever know that I could just be part of it, that it was possible for me to actually just kind of like, you know, take that on and then be within the community that way. Isn't it interesting that when you get the invitation, you're thinking, oh, I wonder if they would accept me here, but you're actually both the same religion, right? So <laughs> on some level, it should be like, we're both Jews. Of course I can go here. Well, I don't see what the problem is, but it's like this unknown of like, how do I have to act? How do I have to dress? Like, am I going to feel comfortable? Are they going to notice me right away that I don't fit in? So you get like all that anxiety when you're not familiar with that environment. I mean, if I ever saw an Orthodox Jew before I was in Baltimore, I always assumed that they would not ever want anything to do with me. Like, I would just assume that they would be hostile to me. Like, here I am, like, not religious. <laughs> and, like, I didn't know any of the things that I was supposed to know. I felt a sense of shame, but I also felt, like, a kind of fear. It was so far, and I never really 
had any meaningful conversation or interaction with an Orthodox Jew until I learned with that woman. And as you're learning with her, you're not only going to the synagogue for the first time, but I would imagine you're building relationship with her and starting to understand like what her life is really like as an Orthodox Jew. And is she starting to talk to you about like, what would it mean for you to grow and sort of start living the way that she has her whole life? Yeah, I mean, she was, to her credit, not in any way pushy. Neither of the women that I learned with were pushy at all. But they did give me the opportunity to understand what it was like for them. And to see that it was like a viable thing to do. Like you could live like that. It would be wonderful. It wasn't so far out of reach. Like it had felt to me like it was completely out of my reach. But it wasn't. It was, you know, Lobeshamayimhi. So what do you do with these feelings? Like you're getting exposed to it. You're seeing, okay, like you just said, maybe it is within reach. But then it's like a whole thing to say, I'm going to literally change my lifestyle and go from being a secular Jew to Orthodox. So how does this like gain momentum where you start to make that decision? And related to that, how are your parents feeling about this, who you said originally were looking for the most secular Hebrew school back in the day? So I, I wouldn't necessarily think they're like rooting you on about this transformation that's starting to take place. No, it was hard for my parents. Throughout college, like it was a kind of gradual journey for me. Like there were several of us in freshman year college who were like kind of running the reform community and like writing services and stuff like that. And like by the end of college, we were all Orthodox. The community at Hopkins at the time was like a very inclusive one, people with lots of of different kinds of relationships and knowledge about Judaism all kind of mixing together. And so I had the opportunity to also meet students and get to know students who had been raised religious and also to meet students who were in the process of becoming religious and to very, very gradually take on Jewish observance, keeping kosher and keeping Shabbat being the primary kind of things that I was taking on at that time, slowly, slowly, like stopping eating certain kinds of food and stopping doing certain things on Saturdays and then starting to do other things on Shabbat, like like going to services and, and starting to kind of feel my way into like, what's an Orthodox service look like? Um, somebody taught me how to say Shimon Esrei. I had no idea, but like one of the students showed me how to do it. And so, like, just this very, very gradual process. And there was a rabbi, um, Rabbi Katz, who was there at the time, and I didn't have so many interactions with him, but I do remember this very meaningful conversation that I had with him where he said, like, people who become religious, like, they give up when they can't recognize themselves in the mirror anymore. So make sure that no matter what you do, you can always recognize yourself in the mirror. And that was such really important guidance for me because I never was taking on anything that I felt like I couldn't own that wouldn't be authentically for me. And it was really, really hard for my parents, especially hard for my mom. I remember it be for a blessing because she's always like a person of moderation and she felt like this was very, very extreme. And I think that she also feared anti-Semitism and like had always been kind of raised to sort of like kind of go below the radar and not like to be visibly Jewish and um, kind of felt like that I was making myself a target. And it was hard for my dad to think in other ways. And it actually didn't really become okay, functionally okay, like we can still have a strong relationship with my parents until I got married because my husband is very normal. <laughs> he wasn't like a he wasn't like to them like a Haredi kind of person. He was raised with a lot more religion than I was, but he wasn't raised orthodox. 
And he's like just a nice down to earth person. And I think when they could see that, like, I wasn't going off with some crazy guy who was going to take me off to Israel and they would never see me again. But with like my very nice, like down to earth human husband who like clearly cared about this too. And so that meant that like I wasn't the only crazy one in the whole world. I think that that really helped to make things feel stable for them. Once we got married, like things sort of stabilized. We had like found our level and then they could kind of, I think, make peace with where we were. You actually solve this with your parents sooner than most people, because usually the great equalizer is the first grandkid, because then then the parents, they want to have a relationship with the grandkid. And so now it like breaks down whatever, you know, conflicts might have been going on between parent and child. So you, you got it done quicker by getting married to someone I think that your parents felt comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, certainly the, my first son was also a very helpful part of the journey. Yes. So you met your husband in college while you were going through your own growth. Tell us a little bit more about his background. You said he had a little bit more than you did and why you were a good match at that time. Yeah. So he was raised conservative and they didn't, I think, like specifically keep kosher in the house, but they didn't eat pork or shellfish. And he was really involved in USY. He had like, you know, had been leaning for, you know, junior congregation since he was, you know, in high school. And so he had a much, and he, so that meant that he had been to services a lot more than I had in my life, Hebrew speaking services. And so he just was much more connected to Judaism as a child than I was, but he wasn't Orthodox and we were close friends in college. Actually, we weren't dating in college, but we were close friends in college and I was becoming religious. And he started to know that if he was going to be with me, that he would need to take on more practice and take on an Orthodox life. There were many steps along the way for him. So you mentioned how things kind of started to settle once you got married. So you graduate college, like where does your life begin? What are you doing career-wise? I started when I finished college, I got a fellowship with the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life. And what happened was I had actually always really wanted to write books. And I thought that I was going to, in my life, go into publishing. But I decided that I really wanted to make a meaningful difference in the world. I felt like publishing was something that you would do while you were also writing books. (laughs) But I, I didn't want to spend so much of my career editing what other people wrote. I wanted to do meaningful things myself. And so I applied for some fellowships, and I got this one for the Coalition in the, on the Environment and Jewish Life, and I started what has become really important in my life, learning and, and teaching and working on protecting the environment and also on what the Torah says about protecting the environment. And one of the things that happened, when, so the Coalition on the Environment Jewish Life isn't really a, a fully floating organization anymore, but they had like a series of sources that were like the Jewish sources that we would refer to to explain why protecting the environment is important. And I was like, these are really powerful sources, but there must be more. <laughs> and I would use these sources and I would think, wow, the Torah really says to protect the environment. We should really do that. And at this point, I wasn't totally religious. I was keeping Shabbat, but I hadn't joined an Orthodox synagogue. I was, I was sort of still on the path. And I was like, I think that there's more to say here. There's more to know about what that all means. And then I got a job, a permanent job at the Environmental Protection Agency, where I've worked ever since. And I also then, right around the same time, joined an Orthodox synagogue for the first time. And I said that I'd like to create an environmental committee in this Orthodox synagogue. We called it the Green Group. And I met someone who was kind of involved in the like faith-based environmental movement. She said, I've never heard of a 
environmental group in an Orthodox synagogue before. I was kind of surprised by that. I was like, but the Torah says we should protect the environment. You shouldn't be surprised, by the way, because if you've ever gone to a Shabbos meal and you see the plastic tablecloth and the plastic plates and cups and everything. Don't get me started. (laughs) It must be painful for you to go to those meals. Well, I mean, I try really hard not to judge anyone where they're at. Just like, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to judge me, but... You know, so I began this exploration of what does the Torah say about the environment and why is it that the Orthodox community doesn't seem to understand what the Torah is trying to tell us about this? And that, after like a lot of effort and exploration and learning, led to the creation of Kamfein Asharim, organization that I ran for 10 years to teach about what the Torah says about protecting the environment. And I began to work with Orthodox rabbis. And to like help, you know, understand really much more about these things. And for me, that was like such a, an experience of self-expression because I understood the whole time that I was becoming religious that the Torah is relevant for now. It's not just like something that's from before. Like there are lessons for our own generation. And the whole time that I was seeking it, I feel like I was seeking it because I believed that it had wisdom that would be relevant in my life now. And in my world, like I was finding that the environment, like obviously in doing the work that I was doing, I was learning more and more about that and feeling like there must be wisdom in the Torah that can help us understand this. And the more that I talked to Orthodox rabbis who were learning about this and exploring it, the more that I understood that it really, really was. There was some wisdom there for us to share and It was a great honor to spend those years learning and teaching that and revealing that information and, you know, having it published all over the internet and in many communities. And um, that was like just a great honor and, and something that I'm still very passionate about. So how did that work practically? Like I'm picturing if you had come to one of the rabbis was like the rabbi of my shul and you got him excited and passionate about the environment, like something maybe he wasn't thinking about before. And then he said, thank you for telling me this, Yvonne, like, I want to run with this, like, what would be then happening within the shul? Like, are they educating the members? Or like, what are they doing that's helping them take what they're learning and trying to put it into practice? My view was that the first thing that we should be doing is learning what the tradition says, and what Torah can teach us about this. Because I believe that we kind of start with values, like we start with like knowing who we are, and what we believe and what the Torah calls us to do, and then we can from there begin to change how we act. Especially in the early stages, it was really just like, so let's write a Devar Torah. And writing is really like was my first love um, in terms of career. And so I was always very happy to be like an editor of any kind of piece of content that someone wanted to share. And so I would be working with rabbis and Jewish educators and scientists to say, like, what is the kind of essence of the message here? And then how can we share it in a way that will really be meaningful and resonate with people? So we had like a Tubishvat campaign where we would have like rabbis who were, you know, willing to talk about this. And we'd get like a series of articles written by Orthodox rabbis and have them posted all over the Internet in the Orthodox space, like a Torah.org on Chabad, places like that, so that those kinds of materials could be shared around Tubishvat. And eventually we began to do that for every Jewish holiday, and then to create a set of core teachings of here's what the Torah says about the environment that was like published as an ebook and is still in use today. And as I was 
learning more about your background, the organization you were involved with then merged with another one. So you like, continued to grow. It's like, what, what happened next? There was something called Grow Torah that came after that? Yeah. In 2014, I said, I think I'm going to stop doing this for now. Like I had done it for more than 10 years and I felt like there were other things that I wanted to pursue and maybe a little bit burned out. And so I said, I'm going to not do this now. <laughs> but the board and Aura Scheinson decided to continue the work. And the work continued in such a way that it ended up merging with Grotora, a really fantastic organization. And when Grotora took Comfy Nisharim in, I was by that point a little less burned out <laughs> and, uh, and came to be part of the board of Grotora. And that's been incredible. They're doing incredible work teaching about the importance of connecting to creation and living in a more sustainable way with mostly with children in Orthodox day schools. And they teach kids how to grow food and they share about the importance of these topics. And they've taken a, some of Kamfina Sharm's materials and they also have a lot of incredible materials on their own. Um, and they do a lot of programs like they're very close to the ground, like, you know, in terms of really working the land. I stand in awe of the amazing things they've been able to do. And you've also mentioned this passion for writing a couple of times. So I understand you're also a published author. So let's give you a chance to just mention your book and let our readers know where they could find it. Thank you. Yeah. In 2019, I was honored to have my first novel published um, by a publishing company called Bancroft Press. The book is called The Prophetess, and it's a story of a Jewish girl who is growing into all of her gifts and also growing into her Jewish identity. So I like to think of it as a story that can help you think, like, what is the calling that's bigger than me that's coming to me? And how can I grow into that calling? Well, also still being myself. And what practically what it's about is about a, a Jewish girl who's like unexpectedly called to join a secret community of Jewish prophets. And she's just kind of a regular Jewish girl, not so affiliated, who is unexpectedly called with these mystical visions and discovers like a sort of secret world of Jewish prophecy and is sort of drawn into Judaism. And like as she's sort of discovering her own power and her own sort of superpower gifts, She's also discovering the beauty of Judaism. I think it's so interesting that that's your title, because that's the first thing you wanted to study when you were first getting into religion. And the rabbi said, don't start with that. And then you're writing a book all about that. Yeah, it's always been really fascinating to me. And, you know, why it's been fascinating is because I really am wanting to know about how Hashem communicates with people. Because when I was young, like when I was becoming religious, like people would say, and I think this is why I wanted to learn about prophecy in the first place, people would say things like, well, prophecy ended. And the way it was sort of communicated to me was, was almost like Hashem stopped talking to people. Like I couldn't believe that that was true, that Hashem would just kind of leave us all alone here. And over time, I started to understand that like Hashem communicate, still communicates with us in other ways. And that we have ways of being able to understand what Hashem wants from us. And I think it's so important to be able to find those ways and to be able to maintain that connection, that like, what is our ongoing relationship with Hashem is really important for me to understand and to share and to teach with other people. So my book, The Prophetess, is available on my website, um, which is growintoyourgifts.com. And on that website, I also have a lot of other 
resources that people might enjoy. I have other kinds of speaking things that I've done, also other recommended books. And I also have something that I'm calling a heroine's journal, which is like a short, simple guide for growing into your own gifts to help women, Jewish women kind of work their way through a process of like, what are my gifts and what am I trying to grow into? And how does that relate to Jewish heroines in Jewish history? How does that relate to sort of some little bits of Jewish mystical wisdom? And then at the end, you have the opportunity to kind of declare a gift that you'd like to grow into. There's like a little cutout where you can cut out a piece and then you could put that into your door so that you can pray for the gift that you'd like to grow into. So um, that's a free printable on my website and um, it's available for everyone if they're interested in it. Thank you for sharing that. So give the website one more time so our listeners make sure they catch it. It's growintoyourgifts.com. So I want to ask you one last question before we close with the lightning round. You referenced starting a family, and I'm just thinking, what's it like raising kids that are now from from birth compared to what you and your husband's experience was like? And what do you explain to them about how you're choosing to raise them versus what you had as a child? It's such a privilege to be able to raise children in this tradition to be able to offer this to them so that they have it and they don't have to fight for it. They can just get it. And sometimes I think that they might feel frustrated that I don't know the answers to all the questions of what they're learning in school. And then I feel sad, you know, that I don't have the ability to give everything that they want to them. I try to explain to them like that this wasn't given to me the way that it's being given to you. And I've had to fight for it and really work for it. And so I just try to have them understand that. And I hope that even though sometimes there are moments of frustration, I hope that like ultimately they'll come to appreciate what that's been like. Then let's now transition to the lightning round to close out the interview. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So if our listeners are inspired by the things you've been saying about the environment, but at the same time, they're thinking, I'm just one person, I can't solve you know, uh, that the earth is heating up, like these are topics are too big for me. What's like one practical thing I could start doing today that Yvonne would say, good for you, you're, you're caring about the environment? I'm hesitating because it's hard to come up with just one thing. And I think that what really I would recommend is to learn more about the environmental challenges that we're dealing with. You could go to Grotora's website and subscribe to their email or you could look for a local environmental group. But I don't really want people to stop with one thing. So try and do a thing. like Just like if you were becoming religious, you would do one thing, but then that thing might lead you to the next thing. So try and do the thing that will like fulfill you and that is like within your reach, but also that could lead you to become somebody who cares about this and who is willing to speak up to other people. Talk to your friend. Say, like, I'm concerned about this environmental challenge. Could we do something together? Or what do you think about it? And try and um, build community around that this is important because it really, truly is. And the more that we build communities and networks of people who care about this, the more that we can actually address the really biggest parts of the problem. And if anyone wants to get any kind of specific environmental resources or recommendations for a Devar Torah, I'm happy to provide them. You can always reach out to me on my website. All right. Question two. As Wednesday and Thursday and Friday morning approaches and a family is thinking about getting ready for Shabbos, can you give them some tips if they wanted to have a more environmentally friendly Shabbos than what they might be doing currently? I think that I would say... Think about how you're using disposable plastic. 
because we know that plastic is polluting our oceans and degrading in our oceans in a way that's really harming all the wildlife there. You know, just kind of using something once and throwing it away is not really the Torah way. We have a mitzvah of baltashchit to not needlessly waste things, and that's not really the Torah way. Think about the disposable plastic. Could I use a little less disposable plastic today? And what would it look like to have a little less of that in my Shabbos? Last question. You talked in the interview about that first time you went into an Orthodox synagogue and a little bit of that uneasy feeling of, will they accept me? So let's say someone is listening to this interview who's not yet religious and says, you know what? I too want to go check out an Orthodox synagogue. I know there's one in my town that I've never gone to. What advice would you give them for that first time that they might be either reaching out to someone at the shul or thinking about going to a service and they just don't know what to expect? I guess I would say... Know that just by virtue of your interest in being there, you have the right to be there. And you belong there because your heart is telling you to be there. And then I would also say, like, either bring a friend or find someone there who you can feel safe with so that it doesn't feel like they're all just strangers. So, Ivan, I love your story. I love the fact that you had this writing contest and how you took that opportunity when Hashem gave you that breadcrumb and look where it led you to. It's such a beautiful, inspiring story. So thank you so much for appearing on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.